culture is always about how do you deliver on your strategic imperatives. And once you're talking about that, you don't need to get the buy-in of the executives. You know, when people say, oh, how do you get them to buy into culture? It's like, well, you don't start with the culture conversation. You start with what are your goals? Where are you taking the company? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm chatting to Siobhan McHale. Siobhan's got a great new book out, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. The work that she did that forms the backbone of the book was at ANZ, At the time, ANZ, Australia and New Zealand Bank, was the worst performing high street bank group in Australia. Seven years later, they transformed the bank into a globally recognized paragon of customer service. So we chat today about her four-step approach to driving culture change and and what what they had to do inside that organization to, to make it happen. We talk about moving to smaller teams, how to, I guess, fire and rehire the 700 branch managers. Uh, We talk about testing for EQ and for hiring for customer centricity. And one of the things that I'm struck by really is that comes out when I'm asking her some questions is that she thinks very clearly that culture is in service of strategy and follows on from strategy. So it's not about staff engagement. It's about where is this business trying to be and what culture does this business need to put in place to enable its strategy to be successful. Fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, I'm Siobhan McHale. I'm the head of HR at Dulux Group based in Melbourne, Australia. I'm also an author of the recently published book, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. And I'm passionate about workplace culture and how you can create workplaces that deliver, grow and adapt. And what uh, what took you on this culture change journey? Where did you, where did it start? I started by studying psychology and then went down the less worn path of organisational psychology while my peers were going into clinical psychology. And I spent the first decade of my career flying as a management consultant, flying in and out of hundreds of different organisations across four continents, helping leaders to create more productive and agile workplaces. And then after a decade as a management consultant, I hit a U-turn and I actually wanted to roll up my sleeves and do change rather than just advising about change. And that's where when I became the executive in in charge of uh, change in a series of multinational organisations. Often multinationals find it really difficult to change culture, but perhaps before I go there, I should say, how do you define culture? Uh, Culture is really about how things operate 
within an organisation. So it's about how things happen and it's it's beyond employee engagement. I think that's one of the big myths that it's about happy people or engaged people. And of course, that's really important, an important aspect of culture, but culture is much more than that. And it relates to all aspects of how an organisation functions, from how you design to how you manufacture, sell and service your, your goods or your products. So it's it covers the whole gamut. And it's how things happen, how things are, are done within the organisation. And how do you measure it? I think it's hard to measure culture per se. You can certainly see it, you can observe it, and it's about the patterns of relating within the organisation. So it's really about those co-created hidden agreements. And you can you can observe those, but you can measure your progress towards a cultural ambition, but it's hard to actually put a metric on the culture itself. But you can certainly measure, for example, how you're tracking in terms of creating a customer-oriented culture, for example, or a performance-driven culture, or a more commercial culture. There can be metrics that you put in place to assess how you're traveling on that journey. Okay. And so you went into multinationals, mostly not places known for their amazing cultures. It always occurs to me that, you know, sort of regression to the mean takes takes place and multinationals are more likely to be full of a cross-section of, of employees that look broadly like the breadth of humanity, as opposed to having deliberately picked a highly talented subset of people. And do you see organization culture as a thing or do you see it as, a, as the sum of the teams? If you look from a high enough balcony, some people would argue that it's always separate. No one culture, you can paint it with the same brush. But if you look from a high enough balcony, you can always see what Gregory Bateson called the patterns that connect. So you can see um, the agreements between the different parts of the organization. So one of the first... Um, organizations that I joined was a bank in Australia called ANZ, Australia New Zealand Bank with its headquarters in Melbourne. It had 32,000 staff at the time. One of the things I noticed as soon as I walked into the bank was that there was this hidden agreement between the branch staff, the 700 branches on the one hand and the head office on the other hand. And head office had stepped into role of order giver and it was directing orders and giving those orders to the branch staff who had stepped into role of order taker and felt victimized and felt like they were, um, you know, just basically taking the orders. And there was this hidden agreement between these two parts that you are to blame for the poor customer service. So each part was blaming the other for letting the customer service uh, really down for, for the customers. And it actually, the bank had the worst customer satisfaction of any bank in the country at the time. And then seven years later, it had actually gone to the number one bank in the country in terms of customer satisfaction and, and the number one bank globally in terms of the Dow Jones Sustainability Index and it had doubled its profit, tripled its share price. So uh, yeah, you can you can definitely transform a culture, and uh, that was a, a seven-year example of that. Right. What did you do? 
<laughs> it's an astonishing turnaround day and that sort of hidden agreements or or the way we work and i guess that was the reason you mentioned that is because turning that around was was key to changing the customer experience yes because i think ordinarily you might go in and you say right there's poor customer satisfaction what should we do and you might intervene by for example training the branch staff yeah, let's all say, you know, let's send all of them off to customer service skills training because they don't know what they're doing. But actually, that would have made very little difference. And in fact, it probably would have exacerbated the situation where they felt done to and put upon and misunderstood. So we're seeing this um, pattern of blame between them that was critical. And what we did was we started by putting in a new operating model. We redefined the role of head office from from order giver to actually being the support provider to the branches. And we redefine the role of the branches from being the order taker to being the service provider to the customer. And everything that they did was about providing great service to that customer. And that new operating model started to do the reframing work. And I talk about this in my book. It's the second step in culture change is to reframe the role of the different parts. And that gives you faster change with less noise. Okay. So what was some of the stuff that you did? I mean, as a management consultant, did you draw on that and say, okay, we're going to pull people together across the organization so that we come up with a new the new operating model, how did you actually do it? There was multiple streams of this seven-year turnaround. Obviously, it wasn't just one thing. Uh, so one of the pivotal things we did was to roll out this new operating model. So we redefined the roles of the parts. And then we started to, uh, my team was uh, particularly rolling out some um programs that were allowing people to step into this new role. So we put 32,000 people across the brand, the whole bank into a program called Breakout, which is about breaking these old patterns, breaking out of the old ways of thinking. And that required a mammoth effort over seven years, but 32,000 people attended this program, which was really about giving them the tools to step into this new role. And um, so that was one of the critical things we did. But it's simple things like we found that most people in head office had no idea what it was like to work in a branch. So we started a program, you know, so they were sitting in their ivory tower. And the first day I went into the bank, I noticed that head office had, you, know, you walked in, there were marble pillars, beautiful plush carpets, um, spacious offices, the light filled, beautiful paintings on the executive walls. And then later on that week, I went to see some of the branches and I noticed that they, you know, paint peeling from the walls, there were threadbare carpets, there were queues of customers lining up for a service that they really rarely got any satisfaction with when they eventually reached a teller. So what we did was say, right, everybody in head office has to spend a day every six months at a branch. You have to go in, you have to serve customers. And that was pivotal because people in the branches and say, this isn't great. This sucks. So did you did you lose many people from head office over that? Did some people just say, you know, sod that, this is childish and I'm off and you thought, good? Yeah. So there was that at the beginning. There were certain people who self-selected and said, I'm not, 
up for this journey, uh, which was led by a CEO called John McFarland. So he he came in and wanted to create a bank with a human face, he called it, the bank with a human face. And um, he wanted to be more than just an institution that delivered for the shareholders. He wanted to deliver for the community, for the customers, for the employees, and actually when we started, over half the people didn't want to be working there. They just didn't want to be there. So that was really telling. And we had to go on this to really regain their trust and regain the trust of the customers who had fundamentally lost the trust in the bank. Well, it's funny that, isn't it? Because it, I, I don't think it's ever possible to get customers to love you unless your staff love the company first. And you, you go into organizations every day as a consumer and you just know that the people who work there aren't enjoying it, don't like it, and you just wonder why they don't go and work somewhere else. Yeah, well, some of them don't really have a choice maybe, but it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, it was a really interesting journey actually to see that transformation over the seven years. Yes, and uh, you've got somebody there in the background with you. I've got my cat. <laughs> 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 That's Rolls. She's she's about nineteen, and she's constantly eating and meowing for more food. <laughs> and so, the um, did you have some branch staff that were actually happy the way it was? You know, there's that sort of triangle. You know, victim, rescuer, and did some people like that was the role they were quite happy playing and when you were asking them to do more and step up even some of and some of the branch staff although they've been complaining about it for a long time weren't happy with the change yeah i think one of the key things we did was um we reframed everybody's role within the organization with a mantra it was one of our five values and it was it was a mantra called that we we called lead and inspire each other so rather than looking to John McFarlane or to the executive team for leadership, we said to everybody, no, you are a leader and your role is to lead and inspire each other. Don't look up for leadership, look to your colleagues. And that was critical to put that in because people started to then say, well, I've got permission to be a leader. And we started to hear all of these stories about people stepping into their leadership role. And of course, there were those who, who didn't like it, but in culture change, you've got to get to a tipping point. And that has to happen within probably 18 months. Otherwise, you start to lose that sense that this is something that I should invest in. People start to, after 18 months, it's a bit like, oh, I'm not sure. I think this might be a fad. I think it might sort of, I don't think I want to be involved in this thing. So this is got to get to that tipping point. And McFarland did it by um, one of the things in, in culture change is the power of symbolic actions. And, and at McFarlane had made an agreement with other bank CEOs that he wouldn't or they wouldn't shut down any more branches in rural Australia because they were the lifeblood of the country. And a competitor bank announced that it was selling 56 branches. It was shutting them down. And that same day, McFarlane thought, well, they've gone against our agreement. We said we wouldn't shut any more down, but they have. So I'm announcing to the marketplace that I'm going to buy those 56 bank branches. And they were seen not to be making as much money. They were actually profitable, but we, we made them more profitable. But 
It was extraordinary what that announcement did. It didn't actually eventuate that he ended up doing that, but uh, for other reasons. But that announcement said to the employees within the bank that I'm serious about this change and I can be trusted to invest in, in terms of keeping my word. And uh, that was really important for people because they'd been let down before by other people who said we're going to change and nothing changed. Well, it's that sort of talk trigger, isn't it? It's like it gives somebody something, as you say, you call it symbolic decision-making. It's taking something which allows people to then talk about the culture change. And this thing is emblematic of of the change you're trying to engender, even if, as you say, you don't end up doing it. What were some of the things that unexpectedly got in your way? I think, you know, the people who weren't on board got in our way. So the people who couldn't step into that role of leader, I think one of the big things was we we had to start aligning all of our processes and systems to our intent for the organisation and for its culture. So um, I would say if you don't do that alignment piece and get all of your people processes lined up, that can slow you down. So you've got to work on the mental maps that people hold and the role that they're taking up. Uh, you've got to work on shifting the patterns, so the patterns between the parts that we talked about. But you've also got to work on those processes and systems that if they're not aligned can slow you down. So, you know, we started to really align everything to our intent to create this more customer-centric culture. And so you mentioned five values. Were those, did you change the values or restate the values in the bank? Yeah, we did. We restated the values, uh, rewrote those values and, and put them in and people let a little lanyard that they carried around the values with them. But one of the things I've noticed in my work with culture is that Many organizations spend an inordinate amount of time workshopping the values, rolling out the new values, and then nothing else happens. And that's where the work really begins, you know. It's like, oh, well, we rolled out our values and we spent hundreds of thousands, you know, creating these values and then everything stops. And I think that's just the beginning. And uh, that's what we did realise and John McFarlane realised at ANZ Bank. The harder part is to bring them to life. So did you did you change your hiring process? Yeah, we, we looked for people who had the aspiration to create this type of culture, who wanted to truly work in an organisation that was customer-centric and also that had high EQ so that they could get along well with their colleagues because it had been quite a toxic culture and relationships were broken. Yeah, so we were looking for people who could make those connections with each other and with the the customer, obviously. So were you looking for people from a hospitality background who obviously had enjoyed working with customers? And, and how did you test for EQ, if in fact you did test for EQ? Yeah, we did. We had a test of EQ at the time. We, When we did this whole shift in the operating model, we actually looked at structure as well. And we created uh, 21 separate business units, which had accountability, everything in terms of customer needs. So they had accountability. So instead of head office making all of the decisions, 
we created these 21 business units and said the business unit leader is accountable for the profit, for the growth, for the costs, for the staff, for the opening hours, et cetera. So delegated all of that authority down to these business units. And then within the business units, there was um, a local CEO, we call them. So again, they saw themselves as the CEO of their region. And within that region, they hired team leads and then branch um, managers, essentially. And in terms of branch managers, we basically did a spill. We just, everybody who was a branch manager got spilled out and we rehired the 700 people. And some of them didn't make it, but we basically rewrote the job and said, this is a customer-centric job. You have to have great ability to meet, understand and meet customer needs, to lead a team. And um, some people put their hand up and said, yeah, that's for me. Other people said, well, no, that's not for me and I'm, I'm leaving. So, yeah, we did. We looked at people who had great customer service skills and a great background in that area. And I think that was pivotal in terms of shifting the culture. And that, when you created those sort of smaller regional teams, that was part of a sort of a decentralization of head office. Did did the scale of, did head office reduce in size as a result? Not so much reduce in size, but definitely reframed its role. So from being the part of the business that all customer queries came to head office. So everybody who had a query, head office would take weeks and weeks to answer that query because they were in close to they hadn't got a clue who the customer was. So the customer's coming into the branch and saying, how's it going with my query? Still haven't heard from head office. They're very slow. So you had this blame, blame. And then head office would blame the branches. They don't know how to treat the customer. The satisfaction rates are very low. Really, it was really about reframing the role of head office to be much more about how do I provide support in terms of IT or finance or risk assessment or HR to the branches in order to enable them to deliver and to grow. And that was a critical, critical reframe. Yes. Well, and, and people in head office working in the branch, did you, did you change your onboarding program? Did people in head office spend time in the branch as part of their onboarding program then in the future? It was the day in the life program. So everybody who came to head office had to spend a day every six months in in the branches and get to know what it was like to step into the shoes of a person in the branches. And then once they went back to head office, they started to see, well, we need new systems. We need new processes. We need to invest in the branches. So the branches went from these shabby places with the threadbare carpets and the leaky ceilings to we completely we spent millions of dollars on a fit out to make them look like retail retail stores so branches started to be seen not as a cost center but as a way of generating connections with customers and really the opportunity to grow the business through the branch network uh-huh and you talked about some success stories that you had you know so what sort of communication rhythm did you put in place to you know, because you've got 18 months there and you've got to make sure that you get past that tipping point. So I guess you thought clearly about your communication rhythm and how you pushed out good news. Yeah, I think communication is critical, but some I do think some people think it's uh, you've got to understand what role you're communicating to people in. So you can push out 
lots of communication, but if people are still sitting in the same role as order taker or order giver, you're going to read that communication in that role. So this is why the reframing work before you even start your comms is critical because what role are you communicating to people in? If they're in role of victim, they're just going to read it and be in role of victim. So uh, communication is always in that context of role. Um, and what we did was we noticed that the branch managers needed help um, because there was a lot going on in terms of change and they needed to know what was going on so they could step into role of leader with their teams. So every Monday we sent them a pack and that pack had all the information about what was happening with the change and the latest stories and the updates and the skills, upskilling that they could do with their people. And then on a Wednesday morning, they shut the branch for several hours and took their team through this pack and used it as an update and also as an opportunity to build that high-performing team and to upskill their, their team members. So that pack was really critical because you can't say you're in role of leader and not give people the tools and the communication to effectively step into that role. Okay, so rather than the messages going out from head office to reinforce that all the smart people work at head office paradigm it was give the branch managers the tools because that says leadership happens on the high street yeah everybody was a leader yeah okay one of the things that occurs to me i remember uh looking at a case study with lloyd's bank in the uk and they'd they took sheffield in northern england as their as their sort of test site and they took took a high performing they took the manager from the best branch in sheffield and stuck him in the worst branch in sheffield and that on its own had no impact. They had to bring some staff with him so that you got the tipping point. What what did you do where you had, because I, I, I guess these things don't happen seamlessly and at the same pace. So you, you, I guess you end up with some branches or some regions that take it and run with it. And then you end up with some branches or some regions which are not where you'd like them to be. And what, what did you do to to level up? Did you have to take action or did you just have to share the results with people? Yeah, I think what you've got to see is what is the big pattern or patterns that are running the organization. So if I take you an example from another multinational company I worked in, which was an infrastructure company, um, it was losing margins and it was struggling in a competitive, very competitive environment. And one of the patterns that was running that organization was leading to this margin compression. And it was really coming out of the fact that this used to be a family owned business. And it was, um, it was really run by the family and people were treated almost like family members. So employees were in the role of family members and the owners were in role of patriarchs and matriarch. And the loyalty to the company was important and staying with the company for a long time was important. And the deal was that we'll look after you and you keep working for us in these far-flung locations. But over time, this pattern became dysfunctional and it started to get um, corrupted in a way that was almost like performing is less important than being liked and fitting into the company. So it's more important to uh, fit in and be liked than it is to achieve uh, for the customer. And what happened was people started to be moved around the company, even though they weren't 
uh, they were underperforming and they were making a lot of mistakes and nobody was giving them feedback. They were just moving people around and this was leading to higher costs and mistakes and overruns and delays, which was, you know, basically squeezing margins. So rather than coming in and saying, oh, well, we need a, you know, we're losing money, send everybody on commercial skills training. That would be the answer. Everybody has to go off on a two-day skills training on commercial thinking or finance training. And you still have this pattern. The pattern is we'd rather be liked than achieve. Uh, It was more important to fit in than it was to deliver for the client. And very quickly, people became caught by it. You know, I had seen people and they came in and they said, oh, yeah, there's a whole lot of underperformers. I've got to performance manage them and I've got to move people out. And within three months, they'd done nothing. They'd been caught by the pattern. They were making excuses. That was the way that you had to fit in in that company. And so until you saw that pattern and that hidden agreement between the executive team and the managers, then you, you were just putting in technical solutions that weren't going to change anything. So seeing that pattern allowed us to put in a different solution. And you came into the organization from the outside. So you see that very clearly, that that pattern in play. And you've also got a remit to change it. But if you're if you're a CEO or MD or business leader listening to this, are there some tools that would help people reflect on on the patterns that are killing their business? Yeah, definitely. And and I have a four-step solution in, in my book, The Insider's Guide to Culture Change. But one of the key things, I think, is to step back. I, I talk about uh, the captain of a ship, you know, and if you spend all your time as the captain of a ship on the deck, uh, you, you're going to miss something. You've got to get up on the bridge. And on the bridge position, what can you see? You can see opportunities, land, ahoy. You can see the storm clouds on the horizon. You can see the direction of the waves. Uh, You've got to toggle between the deck and the bridge. And often we don't get back on the bridge. We, we, We spend all of our time on deck in the business, not really seeing what's really going on in the business. So I, I would say that's one thing. And another thing is just gets an outsider in. Uh, because it's a bit like a dysfunctional family. When you're in the dysfunctional family, you can't really see that it's dysfunctional, can you? You just think, oh, this is pretty normal. Whereas all your neighbours can go, oh, gosh, you know, it's, a bit, you know, it's a bit dysfunctional in that in that family. But for you, it's perfectly normal. That's all, you know, that's the way you do things in our family, isn't that the way? And it's the same in organisations, you know, you you know, once it pointed out, you know, once I talked to the head of this business and said, oh, that's the that's the pattern. It's, oh, of course. I, you know, how did I miss that? That's so obvious. And so uh, how did you change that culture in that business where people aren't used to being accountable for delivering results? Well, again, it's never just one lever. It's multiple levers. And one of the first places I started, it was quite interesting. In my first week, I was interviewing all the members of the executive team. And I was uh, I just finished talking to the CFO and he told me the history of the company and how it really needed to change its culture. It needed to become higher performing and more commercial. There was all of this, these issues and, you know, margins were being eroded. And it was really clear to him that the culture needed to change. And we stood up and shook hands. And just as I was about to leave the meeting, he said, oh, best of luck in in changing the culture, Siobhan. 
And in that moment, I realized that he thought it was my job alone to change the culture. <laughs> and when I looked at the history, I realized that's exactly what had happened. You know, new people were brought in into the HR team and asked to change the culture. And the more that HR stepped into the role to change the culture and try and make change happen, the less the change did happen. Because, of course, as soon as it was HR's responsibility, line managers took a step back. It was now somebody else's responsibility and they didn't have to be concerned. So the first place I started was with the executive team and having a conversation about what are the different roles in relation to culture change and what is your role and what is my role and what is the role of uh, different managers throughout the organisation and each part plays a role, but often those roles aren't understood or articulated. Were the, have the people who have hired you just got bloody lucky that they've hired you or were you the person that they were really looking for? Because in, in that example, you say, well, they'd hired people in HR before and they, they sort of told them that culture was there. And then one day they interview you and give you the job and they had this notion that they needed to fix it, but did, had they, did they deliberately go looking for somebody that looked like you or did they get lucky? I think they'd heard about me from the ANZ example. So they knew they had a culture problem and they knew they needed a culture sort of expert, if you like. So they, they hired me for, they went looking for me. They called me because they knew that it was sort of make or break for the company. Uh, and they also knew that I brought a commercial lens to culture. So I think many people, when they talk culture, they talk about it in employee engagement terms. Um, and that's an important aspect. But I talk about culture in its broadest sense. So it's about, you know, how you create potentially a culture. Culture is always about how do you deliver on your strategic imperatives. And once you're talking about that, you don't need to get the buy-in of the executives. You know, when people say, oh, how do you get them to buy in to culture? It's like, well, you don't start with the culture conversation. You start with what are your goals? Where are you taking the company? And what are the enablers? And one of the enablers is this type of culture. So if you want to create um, faster growth, you need a growth culture. If you want to create more innovation, you need an innovative culture. So how do you create an innovative culture? You don't do it with an engagement survey. You know, that's not where you would start. So I think in HR, we've got to, uh, and indeed consultants, we've got to, we've got to get a new toolkit. You know, we've got to move beyond the framing of culture purely in employee experience terms. And we've got to get that toolkit that is about how do you create more agile, innovative and commercial cultures that can be sustainable over time. Yeah, it, you could create a happy place to work, which was a poor performing business, definitely. And then that would not be in service of your strategy. Did all of the executive teams at that uh, business get on board with your new plan? Well, again, it was my it wasn't my plan. It was the CEO's plan, and that's yeah, the no, thing. no, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So the, the new plan. Not, not all, obviously. I think in any change, you're going to have people who are very attached to the old ways because, in fact, these old ways have helped to make the company successful. They've helped to get the company to this point. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in place. So there will be 
people who see the rationale and who are deeply attached to it because they help create it. Um, now, if those people can't reframe their role and step into the new role, then there's probably a conversation about whether it's the right place for them. Yeah. Now, the reason I asked the question is because I'm often sitting talking to CEOs and, you know, they start saying things like, some of them would say things like, you know, we've got a problem with our staff not being accountable. And at that point, you just really need a mirror because the staff aren't behaving any differently to the leadership team because those behaviors will come down. The leadership team will always cast a very long shadow in the organization. And, and then it's, does that, is that team, is the CEO and the team prepared for the change, the change at their level? which I guess from both the examples there with the infrastructure business and ANZ, you had a CEO who was either, I guess, new and had a change agenda or had decided that it was, you know, make or break to get the company where he wanted to get it to. And sometimes you've got to hold up the mirror. So, um, for example, in the infrastructure company, I had a conversation with a senior executive there who was complaining about, you know, the fact that something he asked his head of marketing to do was to put a billboard on the top of the building for advertising purposes. And three months later, that billboard still hadn't appeared. And he was very frustrated and saying, Siobhan, I'm really annoyed. It's another example of the lack of accountability in the culture. This billboard is just taking too long. And I said, well, who, who have you spoken to about it? And he listed everybody in his team except for the head of marketing, who he had asked to put the billboard up. So he was complaining to everybody, but not having the performance conversation. And the pattern or the agreement was that we don't have the conversations with each other that need to be had. And that was permeating, as you mentioned, the whole organization. So once he saw that, he stepped into a different role. You know, he was in role of Mr. Nice Guy and he stepped into role of performance manager. And it was that reframe that was absolutely critical. Having difficult conversations, they're called difficult conversations for a reason. And if culturally they're even more difficult, then um, then it's hard. Siobhan, what is it that you, if I ask you to reflect back on your on your career, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier on? Well, I think I did spend quite a number of years thinking that culture was about engagement and it's like, hang on, that's one stakeholder, you know, who... Yeah, I've written stuff about the 10 big myths about culture and that's one of them because we're we're taught that, you know, it's engagement and we're given the tools for engagement. Actually, it's much, much broader. So I wish, wish I'd cottoned on to that a little bit earlier. <laughs> okay. And 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 by that, you mean that, that culture is in service of strategy or, or or just that narrow or that just narrow definition is holds people, holds, holds HR professionals back? I think... Culture is always in service of strategy and culture enables strategy. And I say culture is like, it has to be hand in glove, hand in glove with strategy. So if you're going to deliver on a strategy, then you've got to step into your commercial role to see what culture will enable that strategy. And engagement is one part of that, but it might be a whole lot of different types of culture that will enable that strategy, not just an engaged workforce. And these days, I'm not hearing that we're having trouble with engagement. Most people are happy if they've got a job. So, you know, going in with that hammer of engagement is, is you know, we need to create agility more than um, engagement these days, I think. 
Well, and particularly given, you know, the global recession that we are in or might be in, or certainly difficult trading conditions for many organizations, that, that agility is key. Siobhan, along the way, you may well have read some interesting business books. Are there any that you think on this topic or others that, that people should pick up and read as well? Um, John Carter has always been, I've been a big fan of John Carter. And in fact, when I was at ANZ, he called me one day because he, and I nearly fell off my chair because I read all of it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was looking for global case studies on culture change too. And he picked ANZ as one of those case studies and the work on culture change to teach MBA students at Harvard how to, how to manage change. So yeah, he's, he was a big fan and he was a big fan of the work and I'm a big fan, an even bigger fan of his and have been throughout my whole career, great admirer of John Cotter and his writing. Any others that spring to mind? Carolyn Taylor, Walking the Talk, uh, one of the one of the gurus in, in culture, read her book in 2005 and was really inspired. And actually one of the reasons I, I wrote a book myself was that she inspired me with her work, her leading work on culture. Ed Shine, the same. Yeah, well, and I think that whole, his model of culture as an iceberg, I find really useful when you start talking to organizations, particularly about the things that they hadn't thought were cultural, you know, the rituals and the artifacts that that they have lying around their business that are keeping them stuck in the old ways of the the old patterns. Siobhan, uh, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for chatting to me today. It's been, it's been brilliant. Yeah, thank you, Dominic. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>